You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 24th of November, 2023, on Monocle Radio. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Vincent McAvinney. Coming up on today's programme... As Israel prepares to receive its first group of truce hostages, more questions are raised about how they were able to be abducted in the first place. We're not going to invade that. The responsibility of a government is to protect the people, and clearly that responsibility wasn't met. A dramatic night on stage at the Grand Hyatt Hotel in Taiwan as the pro-China opposition parties fall out and end their pact. Then we'll get Andrew Muller's right take on the week. Whale boffins profess themselves mystified. Some have even speculated, more or less, that the black and white marine vandals have been doing it for a laugh. Plus the latest business news. All that right here on The Briefing with me, Vincent McAvinney. Well, this morning, after almost seven weeks of war, a four-day truce has begun between Israel and Hamas. 13 Israeli hostages are due to be released later today, with 50 being released over the course of the weekend. In return, Israel will release 150 Palestinian prisoners, and lorries carrying food, fuel and medical supplies have crossed from Egypt into Gaza. Joining me now from Jerusalem is Greg Karlstrom, a Middle East correspondent and author of How Long Will Israel Survive? The Threat from Within. Greg, thank you for joining us. Firstly, how's the truce holding up so far? It is holding. There were some rocket sirens that went off in southern Israel about 15 minutes into the truce this morning, just after 7 a.m. But after that, uh, things have been calm both in Israel and Gaza. We're expecting the hostages to be released uh, at four o'clock local time. So that's just about two hours from now. And then they should be returned into Israel from Egypt about two hours after that. And just in Gaza itself, have the Israeli military forces pulled back from the positions that they'd reached or are they staying in position and simply not carrying out any other operations? There are Israeli troops still in northern Gaza, which has been the case for almost a month now since the ground invasion began on October 27th. Uh, They are not moving forward from there. Israel has suspended offensive operations in Gaza, but uh, it hasn't withdrawn from the territory. Northern Gaza at this point almost entirely depopulated. Most of the million plus people who lived there before the war have fled to the south anyway, uh, which is comparatively safer. And so the Israeli army is in northern Gaza, but almost no one else is there at this point. And as you just mentioned, we're expecting the first hostages to be released this afternoon. Do we know who they are yet and how it'll actually happen in practice? There hasn't been a public list of names released yet, but the Israeli government received a list of names from uh, Hamas, sent that over late yesterday, and they have notified the families. What will happen is the hostages will first be transferred from Gaza into Egypt. They'll be met on the Egyptian side uh, by representatives from the Red Cross who will be involved in, in the handover. They will then be brought back to Nitsana, which is the border crossing between uh, Egypt and Israel, where they will be identified by Israeli authorities, uh, offered medical treatment, taken to a military base, and then after that, reunited with their families. 
And for the Palestinian prisoners, when will that exchange take place? That should also take place uh, later today or, or tomorrow. And the, the agreement is for three Palestinian prisoners for each Israeli hostage released, uh, meant to be women and children who are being released from Israeli jails, some of whom have been held in what Israel calls administrative detention, uh, which is a policy of, of holding people without charge. So some of these people may have been arrested and held for perhaps long periods of time without being charged. Now, just turning slightly a corner, the Financial Times is reporting today that Israeli intelligence received a detailed warning about the October 7th attack weeks before, but ignored it. Has there been much reaction to this in Israel? There have been rumours of this, of course, for weeks. There have been. There have been uh, several reports, including one on Israel's public broadcaster last night uh, about this unit of soldiers who are tasked with monitoring Gaza through cameras, surveillance drones, other forms of electronic surveillance. And they have said repeatedly, soldiers from this unit, that they noticed what looked like preparations for an attack taking place in Gaza. They saw an unusual number of Hamas militants training for something. Uh, they said they seemed to be rehearsing taking captives, uh, cutting through the border fence that separates Israel with Gaza. Uh, exactly what happened on October 7th during the, the massacre that Hamas carried out. Uh, obviously, a lot of public anger at the government. Uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu, you heard that clip a few minutes ago, has sort of taken responsibility, but not really in a, a clear way. And, and at the same time, he and many of his uh, political and media allies in Israel have tried to shift the blame onto the army, the heads of the security services, uh, accusing them of, of allowing this catastrophe and, and trying to shift responsibility away from the government. Uh, the prime minister concerned above all else right now with his political survival. And so uh, he is keen not to be uh, ascribed blame for what happened last month. Benjamin Netanyahu liked to be known as Mr. Security, but that is a striking omission that they saw all of that going on and didn't put it together with, you know, the, the other warnings that we've heard about of an attack coming. Has the conflict, though, delayed the sort of proper investigation into what went wrong? And, and is there still or is there any sort of scheduled public inquiry or investigation that will go through all of this? There's nothing scheduled, but there certainly will be one. It's going to take time. I mean, the Commission of Inquiry that was set up in 1973, for example, uh, after the Yom Kippur War, which came out with a scathing report about failures by both the government and the military, uh, that commission took months to do its work. And that's probably going to be the case here as well. As you say, I don't think it's going to start uh, while there's a war going on, but that is something that uh, is definitely coming. And it's something that, again, Netanyahu and in, in much of his uh, public messaging uh, over the past month and a half has been trying to prepare for by by shifting blame to other parties. And the Israeli army yesterday also reportedly detained the director of the Al-Shifa hospital. Uh, we understand he's now being questioned. Is that right? Uh, he is. He was arrested uh, at a checkpoint while he was trying to move from northern Gaza to southern Gaza, uh, which has happened to uh, many people. We don't know how many uh, over the past couple of weeks, but uh, a number of Palestinians have been detained for questioning at these checkpoints. Uh, I think just uh, another incident that that gets at the 
complexity of this hospital story. You have many people around the world who will look at this and see a, a medical worker, the director of a hospital, uh, being detained by the army, and, and that seems unconscionable. Uh, in Israel, this is seen as uh, you know, Israel spent weeks saying that Hamas uh, used Shifa Hospital as a command center. It has released some evidence to show that there were indeed uh, tunnels built underneath the hospital and uh, some weapons found within the hospital. And so they will say that they detained the hospital's director uh, because they need to question him about this and, and just gets at the complexity of, I mean, this was, this is a, a functioning uh, hospital, the largest hospital in Gaza. It also does seem, based on the evidence so far, that uh, Hamas was using it uh, as some sort of a military facility. And just turning to what we can expect next week, obviously, this truce is for four days, so should finish uh, on Monday. What will happen on Tuesday, do you think? It should finish on Monday. There is a chance that it will be extended. Uh, there's a provision in the agreement between Israel and Hamas, which says if after those four days, Hamas releases an additional 10 hostages, that will extend the truce for another 24 hours. And each time they release 10 hostages, uh, there'll be another 24 hours. They're thought to have 240 or so hostages. So if they wanted to, they could prolong this by days or even weeks. At some point, it will end. And what the Israeli army has said quite clearly is that as soon as the truce ends, it plans to move ahead with the next phase of its campaign. Uh, part of that is continuing to go neighborhood by neighborhood through northern Gaza, uh, looking for underground tunnels, looking for weapons, things like that. Uh, but the army is also increasingly turning its attention to the south. It seems like most of the Hamas leadership, many of its fighters, uh, have already fled to southern Gaza. And so the Israeli army is talking about uh, some sort of ground offensive there, much more complicated, obviously, because there are now more than 2 million Palestinians there. The whole population of the north has been displaced to the south. Uh, a ground operation there would be very complicated and, and potentially very bloody for Palestinian civilians. But uh, Israeli officials are very clear that that is what they're planning to do. Greg, thank you. That was journalist Greg Karlstrom. Now here's Carlotta Ribello with the day's other news headlines. Thanks, Vincent. Ireland's police chief says 34 people have been arrested following a night of rioting in Dublin. Unprecedented levels of violence erupted yesterday after a knife attack occurred outside a school that injured four people, including three children. The Irish police force blamed the flare-up on a lunatic hooligan faction driven by far-right ideology. Finland is prepared to close all its border crossings with Russia in an effort to halt a flow of asylum seekers attempting to enter the Nordic nation. Finland's foreign minister, Elina Valtonen, has warned that Moscow is deliberately funneling migrants across the frontier and that the Kremlin might try to smuggle soldiers or war criminals into the European Union. And HMV has reopened its flagship store on London's Oxford Street after a four-year hiatus. The music and DVD retailer closed its main London branch in 2019 after going into administration. The company said it hopes to welcome back customers today to its very first store, which opened first in 1921. Those are today's headlines. Back to you, Vincent. Carlotta, thank you. To Taiwan next, where the two leading presidential candidates have ended up registering separately for the January 13th election after previous efforts to run on a joint ticket fell apart. William Yang is a journalist based in Taipei who's been following the latest developments. William, thank you for joining us. Firstly, can you explain to listeners why these two sides were initially pairing up? 
So the two main opposition parties uh, originally decided that they might, in fact, have a chance of winning against the uh the incumbent and the ruling party who's uh, currently leading in the poll. That's why they try to explore this possibility of uh, putting forward this joint presidential ticket. But after initially reaching a very uh, rough deal that this is the consensus and they want to move forward on November 15th, things basically uh, just wane very, very uh, dramatically uh, since then, like a few days later, uh, they failed to agree on how to actually decide which party's candidate should be the presidential candidate in the joint ticket. So they shelved the idea and the plan. And then basically, uh, you know, the following days, they were trying to still negotiate, but couldn't even agree on the place to meet and the way to meet and the things to talk about. And so in the end, it was ended with a dramatic live streamed media reported uh debate basically uh, of all the main uh, opposition candidates sitting on the stage with hundreds of journalists down there actually witnessing everything. In the end, they basically also just couldn't even agree on what to talk about. So uh, everything just fall apart. That's why we saw both of the opposition parties today uh, put forward their own presidential pair. And this also, I think, signifies the difficulty of trying to find common grounds within different political parties in Taiwan. Aside from the battle over who was the top of the ticket, were there any other big differences between their platforms? So one of the major uh difference in their platform is obviously the bigger opposition party, uh, the KMT, has long been uh, advocating for reviving this friendliness between China and Taiwan. They're always advocating for uh, trying to soften the tensions between Taiwan, the Taiwan Strait that we've been seeing in recent years, and they really position themselves as this peacemaker between the Taiwan Strait, whereas this newer opposition party, the Taiwan Peace People's Party, while they also want to renew talks with China, they're a little bit more cautious because uh, they're supported by large groups of young voters, whereas the KMT is a much older legacy party that its voter base oftentimes is counting on people over the age of 50. And so where does this leave the race now? So basically, after uh, the iPhone uh, manufacturer, Foxconn's founder, Terry Go, uh, announced in a statement that he's not going to push forward with his own independent uh, attempt to run as a president, we're uh, now locked in a three-way race where the ruling party uh, is edging a little bit ahead in the poll. They've always been the front runner since the uh, presidential campaign got underway months ago. But the gaps between them and the main opposition party, the KMT, is shrinking. So now they're hoping that this fault collapse of the opposition party's attempt to file a joint presidential ticket would actually allow them to have some time to uh, capitalize and to move forward while the opposition parties continue the finger pointing and the uh, mutual criticism of the other side. And how have voters in Taiwan reacted? So voters have really treated the falling apart and also all the drama that ensued with this opposition party negotiation as a drama, a joke, and they find it very ridiculous that uh, politicians in Taiwan, in fact, could go 
in their own words, so low when it comes to fighting for their own egos. And uh, but on the other hand, uh, they're also a little bit frustrated that they originally thought that this uh, potential coalition between the opposition parties might be able to have a chance for them to uh, focus on topics that are more than just the Taiwan's relationship with China. But now with the uh, two parties failing to really join forces, the uh, election itself is likely going to go back to the old uh, dominant way of being a referendum over Taiwan's relationship uh, with China. And so all the other issues like low wages for young people and the uh, unaffordable housing prices then would just not be able to uh, really come forward and be addressed uh, effectively by the uh, candidates going forward. And has Beijing reacted at all today? Beijing has not really reacted to the falling apart of the opposition party's coalition. Uh, but on the other hand, they've continued to criticize and frame the ruling party pair as a uh, candidate that is basically trying to pursue Taiwan independence. And they're saying that uh, the presidential candidate of the ruling party is an, an instigator of, of war. Uh, whereas uh, the KMT, the main opposition party, has nominated a vice presidential candidate that is very well known for pro-China rhetorics inside Taiwan. So experts are, are uh, expecting that Beijing will view this nomination as a uh, signal that this, uh, you know, the KMT is the presidential pair that they will prefer, and they will start to probably churn out positive and supportive uh, rhetorics from their state media outlets for the KMT uh, going forward for the following weeks that, uh, ahead of the election. William Yang, thank you. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle Radio. You're back with The Briefing on Monocle Radio with me, Vincent McAvinney. Earlier this week, members of the UK House of Commons Culture Committee met privately to discuss the Barclay family's bid to regain control of the Telegraph newspaper with the help of the Abu Dhabi-backed Redbird IMI Investment Fund. Several MPs have expressed concerns about what this deal could mean for press freedom here in the UK. Well, I'm joined now by Jane Martinson, Professor of Financial Journalism at City University of London and author of You May Never See Us Again, The Barclay Dynasty, A Story of Survival, Secrecy and Succession. Jane, thank you for joining us. Firstly, for anyone who's never heard of the Barclays, can you give us a bit of a background on this colourful family? Well, thank you for having me, Vincent, on um, what's definitely becoming one of my specialist subjects, having just um, written this book. And the Barclay brothers, or twin brothers, who it's a real rags-to-riches story, actually, of um, two men who really, through a sort of mixture of property and debt, gained succession-like wealth, um, took over some of the best-known assets in the UK, the Ritz Hotel, um, they bought their own island, a retail empire, and of course the Telegraph, which is in the news now. They were hit by the crash, and, and much of their story really, it's a, it's a fascinating story, but much of it sort of echoes modern Britain in terms of um, the, the economy and business cycles. Um, they then also split, so it's a sort of historical story, but also the, at the heart of it is a story of a family and um, the arguments over succession and what happens um, 
when well one of the twins has now died and the other one is 89 um and in fact in the middle of his own um well he's had a, a fairly nasty divorce um case so um it's been really fascinating actually and now of course it's this sort of final chapter if you like is um they have they've sold the writs um and now they are in the process of trying to make good a debt which um is amounts to well, almost £1.2 billion pounds now to one bank, which is Lloyd's Bank. And they've owned the Telegraph and the Spectator magazine for many years. But what specifically went wrong in their holding? Well, in essence, um, borrowing too much money. And what happened with the Telegraph particularly, and I think it's the easiest story to understand, is that they tried to buy it from Conrad Black, um, in a deal which uh, became quite sort of um, got got into trouble in terms of going into the uh, law court in the US, they ended up taking part in a public auction, which saw them spending four hundred million pounds more than they had want, expected to. They borrowed that money essentially um, and carried on borrowing money from Bank of Scotland. They were they were buying lots at the time. In one incredible six month period, they completed this retail merger and bought the Daily Telegraph, the Telegraph Media Group. That money, um, they then a few years later, there was the crash, as I'm sure many of your listeners will know, they essentially never really paid back that debt. And um, even in 2012, it risen to something like 1.6 billion. Once they stopped paying interest on it um, in 2019, the bank moved to take control of the assets that they could. And it took until, astonishingly, it took Lloyds Bank until June of this year. Lloyds, I should explain, took over Bank of Scotland, which was the sort of original lender and renowned for uh, lending so much money pre-crash. It was then bailed out by the British taxpayer. And and at one point, Lloyds, which owned um, the old Bank of Scotland by this point, was 43% owned by the British government. Um, so it's sort of this incredible story, you know, the taxpayer bailout. Um, and, you know, with the Barclay family still owning, owing, sorry, 1.2 billion mm. and um, trying to pay that off with the sale of the Telegraph and the Spectator. And there are several parties now trying to get hold uh, of this uh, newspaper group. But before I turn to them, why are the Barclays so interested in keeping it? Because newspapers you know, declining sales, struggle to make huge profits. Why do they want it so much? Is it a case of wanting the influence it wields? I think it's the case with everyone. I mean, what's astonishing is um, anyone who's been looking at the media for a long time would would have thought, you know, that the death certificates for the media, uh, particularly a print legacy um, business like the Telegraph and Spectator, had written them off years ago, at least a decade ago. Uh, not just the Barclays have, have tried to keep hold of this um, incredibly influential newspaper. You know, obviously, very famously, a former prime minister was uh, writing a very well-paid column until he went into number 10. And they were very close to Margaret Thatcher. They have really keen Brexiteers. It, they, you know, it, what it offers, it doesn't necessarily offer you a great way to make money owning a newspaper, but it does give you a big and powerful voice and some influence. Um, they just to be clear, though, they are at this point, the current deal would mean the Barclays don't keep hold of the Telegraph. Mm. They would um, money comes in to pay off the debt. But if you look at everybody who's interested in buying it, 
it, the power and influence that comes with a newspaper is not just restricted to the Barclays. You know, lots of people, some of the richest people on the planet, want something want to own this British newspaper group. And what are the concerns that MPs and others have about, you know, an Abu Dhabi-backed investment fund uh, managing to take hold of it? Are there issues around press freedom? Yeah, huge issues against press freedom. And actually, you know, this really current, um, as you know, yesterday, the Culture Secretary, Lucy Fraser, said she was minded considering a referral um, to the media regulator. I mean, the issue is, firstly, should any fund... A sovereign wealth fund, so a nation state effectively, even if it's through one uh, individual, which we think it's um, Sheikh Mansour, should someone connected to another government, no matter how friendly, buy something influential? Is a newspaper the same as a luxury hotel, a football club? I would argue, and I think lots of people um, in the House of Commons, for example, would argue, no, it isn't. It has too much influence on public opinion or can do. Um, And the other thing is, obviously, Abu Dhabi may be a friendly stage. We have a summit, an investment summit, um, in which they are attending. They're one of the biggest investors in the UK. But they have a terrible reputation for press freedom in their own country. Um, They have media censorship. They have a media council, which logs. They harass journalists. So this, this is not a country which takes press freedom seriously, unlike many you know, long sort of developed truth like the UK. Jane Martin, thank you very much. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle Radio. It's time now to get the latest business news with Bloomberg's Ewan Potts. Ewan, thank you for joining us. Uh, There's more hopes that Europe's biggest economy may do better over the coming months. Hello, Vincent. Yeah, Germany's business outlook has improved for a third month now. I mean, the economy is probably already in a recession. It's also been beset by a budget crisis, a fiscal fiasco uh, happening in the capital. But the IFO Institute's widely watched gauge of business expectations is now at a six-month high. So the broad picture for Germany, uh, Europe's biggest economy, is that uh, it has been a rough 2023, but 2024 perhaps could be a little bit better. This is a forward-looking survey of business expectations, and it has uh, it has ticked higher. It's a bit of a bright spot in a country which is really enduring both political turmoil and uh, a very poor economic picture. It's really in the worst economic picture because of high energy prices and its reliance on a massive industrial sector, which has been really hit by those high energy prices. Uh, we've also uh, seen, of course, this... Uh, mess over the uh, deficit. Germany is going to suspend its constitutional limits on new borrowing. It's the fourth consecutive year it's had to do this. It's very embarrassing for the uh, uh, the FDP, the Free Democrat Party. Uh, they were keen to 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 be hawkish uh, on the budget, and they've had to uh, concede that they'll need to retroactively account for at least 37 billion euros of new uh, off-budget debt. That been earmarked to ease that burden of those high electricity and gas prices. So that was a, a ruling by the top court. So a lot of political turmoil in Germany, but perhaps a little bit of hope on the economic front. Mm, raises more questions about Merkel's legacy when it comes to taking down uh, nuclear power and bringing in things like Nord Stream uh, from Russia. Uh, and turning now to Finland, uh, some consumers are getting free electricity today. 
Yeah, the company which runs Finland's electricity grid system has asked the public to keep power consumption at normal levels today. Now, the reason that they may be uh, tempted not to do that is uh, a lot of consumers will be getting free power today. A growing number of uh, consumers in Finland pay exchange prices plus a margin for their power. Uh, and that means uh, uh, that they're going to get uh, free power. Some of the water have got uh, automation set up to charge their electric vehicles and heat their homes. So obviously those things are going to kick in today. This is all because of a trader error which sent shockwaves through the market yesterday as a company mistakenly offered to sell the equivalent of at least half the country's entire power consumption at an hourly auction. That meant that the uh, trades uh, settled at an average price of minus 203 euros per megawatt hour. And in fact, right now and up until midnight tonight, the finished power price is minus 500 euros uh, per megawatt hour. Uh, so uh, a day of pretty cheap power for a number of Finns. <laughs> Ewan, thank you very much. That was Bloomberg's Ewan Potts. This is The Briefing on Monocle Radio. And finally on today's show, it's Friday, which means it's time to get Andrew Muller's wacky take on what the past seven days have taught us. We learned this week that orcas do not care for heavy metal music. A concession there to all our orca listeners. Don't mention it. We learnt this via the latest development in the ongoing saga of orca attacks upon passing shipping in the Gibraltar Strait. Let's try some background music which may meet with the favour of our two-tone-toothed whale friends. We capsized our boat and we lost five men And we did not catch that whale brave boys Literally a song about an interaction between whales and ships in which the occupants of the ship come off second best. This will make sense shortly, but again, you see how much work goes into these things. Come on. (laughs) Just get on with it. Anyway, we learned some while back that orcas have of late been targeting boats attempting to navigate the straits, and with some success. They have sunk at least three craft and damaged several more, often ripping off the rudders. Whale boffins profess themselves mystified. Some have even speculated, more or less, that the black and white marine vandals have been doing it for a laugh. But there seems little doubt that they're doing it on porpoise. Thanks for coming out and so forth. But we learned that among the means that sailors have deployed to deter the dichromatic aquatic marauders has been blasting heavy metal music through underwater speakers. Beleaguered sea dogs have even traded playlists. And it is the properly grim stuff made by groups including, these are all actual examples, Monument of Misanthropy, Dying Fetus, Ingested, and zany Russian funsters, Abominable Putridity, whose track Paroxysm goes like this, all together on the chorus. Beginning to see the orca's point, Mallet. Mallet. 
Anyway, we learned, though were not surprised, that this din just seemed to make the colour-free, ocean-going miscreants even angrier, to the extent that they clattered the catamaran emitting the racket, necessitating a forlorn tow back to port. <laughs> Sticking with the subject of extreme measures being taken to silence vexatious popular song, we learned that the artist responsible for this... is subject to a warrant for their arrest. We learned when we looked into it further that this was not due to any well-intentioned, if arguably heavy-handed, endeavour to discourage the production of oversold balladry, but yet further demonstration of the extraordinary capacity of Russia for being sinister and ridiculous at the same time, like a vampire in clown shoes. <laughs> The tune in question you may recognise is 1944, with which Ukrainian singer Susanna Jamaladinova, who trades as Jamala, won the 2016 Eurovision Song Contest. You may also recall Russia flinging its borscht off its high chair at the time, enraged by this obvious lament for the deportation of Jamala's ancestors, the Tatars of Crimea, by Vladimir Putin's ancestor, Joseph Stalin. We learned that Jamala is now wanted by Russian plod for, it says here, spreading fake information about Russia's armed forces, which all sounds very much like the kind of thing that a sane and normal country would consider a reasonable and constructive use of everybody's time and resources. We also learn, thanks to this latest extremely dignified tantrum by Russia, that Jamala has a newish album out. It's called Kirim, and here's a bit of it. That's Kirim, the new album by Jamala, available now. Thanks for letting everybody know Russia's Ministry of Internal Affairs. And we learned of a truce in one of the less likely diplomatic fracas. Actually, is the plural of fracas just fracas or fracases? Does anybody know? I think it's fracas. I really think no, it's plural of It's fracas, and there's no question. Fracas, for God's sake. Righto, don't have all day. We learned of a truce in one of the less likely diplomatic spats of our time, specifically a detente between Manchester United central defender Harry Maguire and Ghanaian Member of Parliament Isaac Odongo. Aficionados of the ludicrous may recall that last year Adongo gave a speech to Ghana's parliament in which he drew unflattering comparisons between the economic management of Ghanaian vice president Mohamedou Bawamoa and the hapless footballist. He became the biggest threat at the centre of Manchester United's strengths, tackling Manchester players and giving assists to opponents. <laughs> Mr Speaker... When even the opponents fail to score, Maguire will score for them. <laughs> Mr. Speaker, you remember in this country we also had an economic Maguire. We learned that Adongo has now rethought his opinion of Maguire. Mr. Speaker, I now apologize to Harry Maguire. If not, 
his opinion of Vice President Baumoa. Mr. Speaker, Harry Maguire is not a key player for Manchester United. As for our Maguire, he is now roaming at the IMF with a, with a cup in hand. With a cup in hand. We learned that Maguire had accepted this apology and invited Odongo to Old Trafford. While all would appear to be well that ends well on the Ghana-Manchester United front at least, we have also learned that some schisms are probably irreconcilable. For Monocle Radio, I'm Andrew Muller. Many thanks to Andrew Muller there. And that's all for this edition of The Briefing. It was produced by Emma Searle and Lillian Fawcett. Our researcher was Harrison Warlock and our studio manager was Tamsin Howard. The Briefing is back on Monday at the same time with me, Vincent McAvinney. Goodbye and thank you for listening.